Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now, let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. You ever send somebody to deliver a message, but they deliver the wrong message? I have a memory from eighth grade. Uh, parts of it are hazy. Here's what I remember. I'm at a middle school dance. You can picture it. It's one of those situations where the guys are standing over here, the girls are standing over here on this side of the gym. Uh, a slow song comes on, right? So my buddy, who I'm standing with, knows me well. So he says, hey, <clears throat> you want me to go over there and, and tell her that you want to dance with her? I say, sure. And then I watch him walk his way over to the other side of the gym to her to talk to her for a second. I'm saying, okay, here we go. Next thing I know, this girl and my friend that I sent as a messenger are dancing with each other. That's telling a different story than the one you were sent to tell. I sent my friend to tell a story, hey, Tim wants to dance with you. I don't know what story he actually told, but I am not convinced that it was that one. What if I told you that there's a God who sent us to tell a story, but by the way we live our lives, you and I sometimes tell a completely different story than the one he sent us to tell. In today's scripture text, Jesus warns us against telling a different story than the one that we were meant to tell in our marriages, specifically. Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 10, if you haven't already? Mark chapter 10. This fall, we've been working our way through a portion of Mark's gospel, Mark 8, 22 to 10, 52, and passage after passage, Jesus has been instructing his disciples regarding the way, so to speak, of following him. In recent weeks, we've seen Jesus say things like, be at peace with one another. Don't cause anyone to sin. Instead of trying to be first of all, be the servant of all. Here's the thing. There's perhaps no human relationship in which those commands about peace and sin and servanthood are harder to live out than in marriage. When we wake up next to the same person every day, when we see all their flaws, when we share the same toilet, the temptation can be strong to walk a different path than the path Jesus calls us to walk, to tell a different story than the story that God designed our marriages to tell. Now, when I say that God designed our marriages to tell a story, I'm saying that because of a little phrase in the passage that you just heard Kayla read. I've highlighted here a, a portion of our passage. Take a look. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, Jesus believes... That even though it's two human beings that weigh the pros and cons and maybe anguish over the decision to marry and then decide to marry each other, even though sometimes the family chips in to pay to make the wedding happen, even though there's a pastor or justice of the peace who performs the ceremony, at the end of the day, when two people are married, they are married because God joined them together in the most ultimate sense. But why does God do that? What is God's purpose in joining humans together 
in marriage. In this passage, Mark 10, Jesus gives us just a taste of the answer to that question. But to answer that question more fully, we're going to have to draw from the big story that reaches actually from the first chapter of the Bible to the last. And that's what we aim to do today. Our big idea today is going to be this. Let's use our marriages to tell the story God is telling. Let's use our marriages to tell the story God is telling. And actually, there's going to be something for all of us here, married or unmarried, because we're all telling a story. The question for all of us is, what kind of story are we telling? Are we telling God's story, or are we telling a different story? Now, one more thing needs to be said before we fully jump in. Some members of our church family here this morning, perhaps some of our guests as well, you are divorced, or you have been. You know the pain of a marriage that tells a different story than the one God designed it to tell. You know the loneliness of divorce, which is a sort of loneliness that exists in a class all by itself. Here's what I want you to hear loud and clear at the outset. You don't have a target on your back today. This isn't take cheap shots at the people whose marriages failed day. Rather, Today and every day, we, your church family, want to come alongside you in two ways. One, to help you through the pain of divorce. That means providing a family for you in Christ. It perhaps at times means helping you own what you can own from your broken marriage, but always it means showering you with the grace of Jesus Christ and the comfort of his spirit. Secondly, Supporting you, coming alongside you means to clearly and unflinchingly name that what was done to you was wrong in God's sight and contrary to his design for marriage. Part of supporting each other is warning each other about the pain that's inflicted by broken marriages that tell a different story than the one God intends for them to tell. In other words, we believe that loving you well includes hating the divorce that harmed you. So we aim to warn against distortion even while comforting through the pain. That's the goal. Here's how we'll uh, approach this passage today. The phrase that we looked at, what God has joined together, implies this whole marriage thing is God's idea and therefore should tell the story that he created it to tell. But the Pharisees, whom Jesus dialogues with in this text, they're telling a different story. So we'll look at the Pharisees' story first, and then we'll look at God's story, and then we'll wrap up with some implications of all this. So first, what story are the Pharisees telling? What story are the Pharisees telling? Pharisees, you may know, are, uh, were a Jewish sect who took pride in taking Scripture very seriously. Many of them were experts in the law. They generally believed themselves to be the gold standard of moral purity. With few exceptions, they aren't fans of Jesus. This passage isn't their first confrontation with Jesus, and it won't be their last in Mark's gospel. They regularly try to trap him. So where do the Pharisees fall on marriage and divorce? Well, if you can bear with me for just a moment, that requires a little bit more background. Two major camps were emerging in Judaism at this time. Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai had different answers to many of the major theological debates of the day, and faithful Jewish people tended to fall into one of these two camps of scripture interpretation. On divorce and remarriage, Team Hillel and Team Shammai agreed, actually, that divorce and therefore remarriage were permissible in certain situations. 
that part doesn't seem to have been a debate. The debate was, under what conditions is divorce permissible? Those who followed Rabbi Shammai were pretty hardcore. They looked at scripture and said, well, it looks here like only if one's wife commits adultery should he divorce her. Only for adultery. Those who followed Rabbi Hillel were more lenient. They read the scriptures to be saying a man can divorce his wife for nearly any sort of displeasure with her, including they named as an example uh, her burning his meal, overcooking his food. Grounds for divorce. Shammai Hillel. Hillel's was by far the more popular understanding in Jesus' day. At the time of the interaction, Mark 10, and indeed most of the Pharisees in Jesus' day were on the side of Hillel. As such, the Pharisees permitted what we might call no-fault divorce. Just about any cause for divorce was validated. Again, burnt dinner rolls. Uh, when I throw a load of laundry in the wash and then forget about it so it sits there wet overnight. If Sarah were Team Hillel, I might be in trouble. Uh, except, not really, because even the permissive Hillel school didn't give women the freedom that were given to men to divorce a spouse. That's kind of setting the stage. Meanwhile, in a not unrelated series of events, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, has just been beheaded a couple chapters ago. And that's directly relevant to our passage today, actually. Because, do you remember what made Herod and his household so mad that they had John killed? John the Baptist, he was vocally critical of Herod's marriage because Herod's wife, Herodias, had divorced Herod's half-brother to marry Herod, if that makes sense. John the Baptist publicly called them out for their sinful marriage until Herod and Herodias had enough of that. They threw him in jail and eventually beheaded him. So needless to say, John the Baptist was not in the Hillel camp and therefore not aligned with the Pharisees when it came to divorce and remarriage. You see the fault lines emerging on this sensitive issue? We're going to see where this goes in a minute, but I think there's actually already an opportunity to pause and examine ourselves in light of what we've seen. Like imagine being someone in Jesus' day who had fallen out of love with your spouse and wanted out of your marriage. Picture that for a moment. You're wondering, am I justified in getting a divorce? There's no smoking gun, so to speak. My spouse just kind of annoys me. We're not compatible. It's become clear. But you don't want to disobey God, so you ask the Pharisees, the most serious Bible teachers you know, to advise you. And you learn that as far as the Pharisees read the Bible, her overcooking the pot roast last night means I'm clear to sign the papers. Here's the warning I take from that, personally. If one day I wake up and want to leave my wife, I will probably be able to find some Christian scholar who gives me biblical permission to do so. I'll probably have some Christian friend who will listen to my side of the story and tell me that I have legitimate grounds for divorce. And they'll be, ah, just what I was hoping to hear. Except that won't mean that they were right. You see the danger? Every one of us is capable of letting our desires cloud our reading of the scriptures, of seeking out the answer that we already wanted to hear. 
And the moment I start to think that I'm immune somehow to twisting scripture to rationalize my sin, I'm in the most danger of all. Anyways, this is a trap that they've set for Jesus. Verse 2 says it outright, doesn't it? They came up in order to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, they ask? So now that we've seen the backdrop, and thanks for your patience as I set the stage, by the way, you can, can you see the minefield that they've invited Jesus into by asking him this question? There are about a thousand ways that Jesus could get tripped up as he answers. Team Hillel could write him off for siding with Team Shammai. Team Shammai could write him off for siding with Team Hillel. John the Baptist, who still had many followers in a crowd like this one, they might write him off if he doesn't give a sufficiently hard-line answer on divorce. But if he does give the sort of black-and-white answer on divorce that John the Baptist would give, word might get back to Herod and Herodias, who might come for Jesus' head next. It's divisive that the Pharisees would do this. This is the sort of thing Satan tried to do to Jesus back in Mark chapter 1 to trap him and cause him to sin. But just like Jesus did back in chapter 1, Jesus is going to stick to the story that God's telling. So what is the story that God's telling in Christ? The thing about the story God's telling is that it's hard to make out the story God's telling just by opening up to one single scripture text. The Pharisees try. They sometimes seem to treat the Bible as like a science textbook. Like, what do we do about divorce? Well, let's find the chapter and verse that talk about divorce. And it happens to be Deuteronomy 24. So let's figure out what's allowed and what's not. Jesus, on the other hand, sees Deuteronomy 24, which we're going to look at in a moment, embedded in a story that God is telling. So without wanting to lose the contribution of Deuteronomy 24 to the story as a whole, he insists on situating De- Deuteronomy 24 within its proper place in the story. That's why he zooms out in this passage to the beginning of the story, to Genesis 1 and 2. So quick refresher on how the Bible works. Chapters 1 and 2 of the Bible, everything's great. Nothing's missing. Nothing's broken. Chapter 3, sin enters the world, and it all falls into chaos. All of that is in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which along with the next four books were written by who? Moses, right? Yet Jesus knows that Moses, the lawgiver, never commanded nor endorsed divorce. He also knows that Moses did permit and regulate divorce, including in Deuteronomy 24, that passage that the Pharisees are thinking of in this passage, where there's a hint of permission for divorce, for, quote-unquote, some indecency. Here's the passage. When a man takes his wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That was the argued over passage in this day. And then the passage goes on here in Deuteronomy 24. You can look at it on your own later uh, to give regulations for what happens if there's a divorce and then this person remarries somebody else, but then they divorce that second spouse. Can they go back to the first spouse? And the answer here is no. That's what this passage is intending to adjudicate. But notice, is divorce commanded here? No. It's it's dealing with the situation if that happens. Moses, inspired by God, is dealing with the reality that it does sometimes happen. So look at the genius in Jesus' response in our passage. Mark chapter 10, uh, a thousand or two years later. Remember what they're asking. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
In their minds, the answer is, of course, Deuteronomy 24. Notice what Jesus says in response. What did Moses command you? Now, Jesus knows that they know Moses didn't command divorce. And they have to concede that point in their reply. Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. But to Jesus, their answer there to what Moses commanded is incomplete because Moses also wrote Genesis. So Jesus takes them to school here on Moses' earlier words. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's a quote from Genesis 1, 27. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2, 24. Pharisees, how's that for what's lawful according to Moses? And once Jesus has expanded to our field of vision beyond Deuteronomy 24 to where Deuteronomy 24 fits in the grand story of everything, we start to see the contours of a storyline emerging. It's a mysterious storyline that only comes into clear focus, I think, on this side of the cross. Here's a summary of the, the storyline from cover to cover in the Bible. Right? It starts at the beginning. Marriage, according to Genesis 1 and 2, is not a human idea. It's the idea of a creator who theoretically could have made us to reproduce asexually or to hop around from partner to partner or any other number of ways he could have made it, but who came up with Male, female, sexually consummated, permanent, exclusive marriage instead. Then we keep reading along in Scripture. And we find these moments in the Old Testament in which God speaks of himself as a husband. And his special chosen people as his bride. She's an unfaithful bride. She runs off to other lovers. But he remains faithful to her. Never leaving her for a more desirable partner, though he had every reason to do so. And we start to wonder, maybe, what's the connection between human marriage and God's relationship with his people? Then along comes Jesus, who, though single, publicly uses bridegroom language for himself while living a perfect life that culminates in a sacrificial death for his people, all of which prompts the Apostle Paul to rethink that mysterious storyline again and connect the dots like this. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And then the Apostle John completes the storyline for us in the last two chapters of the Bible when he has a vision in which God reveals to him how this whole story started in Genesis 1 will end. I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven 
from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. In other words, from the first chapter of the Bible to the last, it's been a parable all along. And to be clear, it's not the relationship between Christ and the church that's the parable to help us understand human marriage better. It's the other way around. The relationship between Christ and the church is the real thing. According to Paul, it's what was being envisioned in Genesis chapter 2. And when God wanted us, wanted to help us grasp that, he created the metaphor of human marriage so that we could see on this earth at least a faint reflection of the ultimate. Viewed in light of that big story, almost every aspect of human marriage takes on new meaning. For example, the one flesh nature of human marriage becomes more than just a joining of bodies now. It's a glimpse of the intimacy that we have with Christ, our bridegroom, an intimacy so intense that there's now one singular body, so to speak, where there had been two complementary bodies. The mutuality of the marriage relationship becomes a reflection of the mutual delight experienced by Christ and the church together at that great wedding feast that puts a final exclamation point on the Bible. The permanence of the marriage relationship becomes a pointer to a watching world to the fact that despite our giving him every reason to leave us, Jesus will never disown his bride. And his true bride will not ultimately turn their back on him. Once we see the breadth of that story that God has been using human marriage to tell, now Moses' concession in a passage like Deuteronomy 24 can be seen for what it is. Divorce was never God's ideal. Permitting it in certain cases was an attempt to protect the individuals involved when marriage had already departed from what God had intended it to be. And that's why Jesus can say in verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. In other words, if you all had softer hearts, there would be no need for concessions for divorce or for commands that protect those involved in divorces. As of today, Jesus says, I'm calling you back to the Genesis 1 and 2 ideal. Don't separate what God has joined together. That raises a very important question. As many have pointed out, there's still plenty of hard-heartedness in Jesus' day. So what business does Jesus have overriding Moses to call for a return to the Genesis 1 and 2 ideal? In other words, come on, what what hope is there really for hard-hearted people to somehow suddenly start overcoming their hard-heartedness to use their marriages to once again tell the story that God originally intended those marriages to tell all because Jesus just said so? Biblically speaking, there's actually no hope for that. It's not possible unless... Unless Jesus has in mind that he's about to solve the problem of hard hearts. Unless he's thinking ahead to a day when when he'll send his spirit to do something Moses was unable to do. To replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Such a day had been prophesied a few centuries before this. Here's Ezekiel 36. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, God says, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Has that day long prophesied now come in Mark chapter 10? The answer is yes. 
Jesus, by the power of his resurrection, is planning to unleash the Spirit on his people to do just what was foretold in Ezekiel 36. And that's why when he speaks to you and I, to you and me who have had our hearts of stone replaced by hearts of flesh, he no longer calls us to the concession of Deuteronomy 24, but to the ideal of Genesis 1 and 2. So question, what story is your marriage telling? Three specific assessment questions on that. Is the one flesh nature of your marriage telling a story of intimacy between Christ and the church? Or is your lack of intimacy painting a picture of Christ and the church as sort of like roommates maybe who coexist as they live their separate parallel lives? Second, is the mutual nature of your marriage telling a story of mutual delight between Christ and the church? Or is your selfish bickering painting a picture of Christ and the church as if they're the old grumpy couple who has given up on joy? Third, is the unwaveringly permanent commitment of your marriage telling your children, the watching world, Christ will never leave you or forsake you? Or is your constant flirting with divorce, threatening divorce, telling your kids and the watching world, Christ might leave you if you become unbearable enough. And single and divorced people, you're actually some of the most important voices in telling this story. When you choose to remain unmarried instead of getting into a marriage that doesn't reflect this story, you actually uphold this beautiful story and retell it, in a way, to a watching world. Don't compromise by getting into a marriage that doesn't tell this story. And also, when you live out your singleness with joy, instead of elevating human marriage to a place of ultimacy, like many of us do, you uphold this beautiful story by affirming that there's a greater marriage that I really don't want to miss out on. This earthly marriage is a shadow. If I get it, okay. If I don't, I'm no worse off for eternity, because I'm the bride in the marriage that will put all human marriages to shame. So married, single, divorced, we all have to ask ourselves the question today, is my life, are my choices telling God's story or telling a different story? Finally, a few more reflections just about what this means for us. Implications. First, the better we know the real story, the better we can recognize counterfeit stories, I think. You've heard about how counterfeit bill checkers, they don't get trained in all the various counterfeits that exist out there. They just get really, really good at knowing the real thing. Same in marriage. We need to be immersed in the Bible's cover-to-cover -cover story of the greatest marriage of all. And in light of that, it becomes clear uh, the distortions. For example, if our marriages involve two members of the same sex, that is a counterfeit story. We saw that in verse 6 where Jesus explicitly points back to the male and female design in Genesis 1. Not, he's doing that not because of the cultural norms of his day or because God has some random arbitrary thing against people with same-sex desires. No. It's because Jesus believes God has created marriage to tell a story of complementary unity and diversity. In other words, Christ and the church, they're not the same in their roles in that ultimate union. They aren't interchangeable in the parts that they play in the marriage. Same-sex marriage distorts that story by exchanging that fundamental diversity for something that's more uniform. 
But we see here in Jesus' words, don't we, that heterosexual marriages are completely capable of telling a different story as well. When the disciples pulled Jesus aside at the end of our passage to talk to him privately about his teaching because they're stunned at how many heterosexual marriages are indicted by Jesus' words here, he doubles down on it. He says to divorce and remarry isn't just to tell a different version of God's story, it's to tell a completely different story by committing adultery, he calls it. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Implication here, divorce always involves sin. To Jesus, there's no such thing as a mutually amicable, nobody's wrong, we just agreed to go our separate ways because we grew apart. To Jesus, that's telling a different story than God's story. And so no marriage is dissolved, according to Jesus, without sin being committed in the process, period. That was not a popular position in Jesus' day. His disciples seemed like they couldn't even believe that this could be what he's really teaching. And this passage is met with the same reaction often when it's read today. Now, there are exceptions. You'd be remiss not to acknowledge that there are exceptional cases to what Jesus says here, even according to Jesus himself. I've intentionally left those exceptions for the end because so often in these conversations, all we end up talking about are the exceptional cases and we miss the heart of the message. I wanted instead today to foreground what Jesus foregrounds, to emphasize what Jesus emphasizes before circling back to these exceptions, but let's talk about them for a moment. Matthew's gospel records Jesus giving the exception of adultery, sexual immorality. If a spouse commits adultery, then at least the innocent party does not commit adultery when he or she divorces on those grounds and then marries someone else. That exception isn't mentioned in our passage in Mark. It's also not mentioned in Luke, probably because it's assumed. Remember that literally everybody believed that adultery was grounds for divorce, and most at the time even believed that it mandated divorce, unlike what Jesus teaches. There's another exception that Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 7, namely if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, because of your faith in Christ. There may be variants on those two scriptural exceptions, right? We could talk about a thousand situations that involve dimensions of one or the other of those two with uniquely challenging features. But time this morning won't allow us to get into all the nuances except for one that I do want to bring up. If you're being abused, especially repeatedly and violently, the elders at North Suburban Church want to help you get out of there, uh, to notify the authorities, to get yourself to safety. If you're holding out hope that your spouse will change, remember that you don't know if God will use a separation or even divorce to help your spouse wake up and change after you take that courageous step to remove yourself and your kids from harm's way. God can change people. Marriages can recover, even from abuse. Many have. But faithful spiritual leaders will help an abused spouse call the authorities before anything else will encourage you to do what's necessary, whatever's necessary to get yourself and your kids safe. Exceptions aside, our day in, day out is a fight to tell the story that God's telling as best we can in this fallen world with the help of other believers to help us see when we are rationalizing or justifying our sin. 
So remember our big idea is let's use our marriages to tell the story that God's telling. And let's come alongside each other to help each other do the same. There's a story we were put here to tell. Single folks tell it when they live for the great marriage instead of the imitation. And when they refuse to settle for a human marriage that tells a different story. Married folks tell it when we take our cues from the relationship between Christ and the church. Doing our best to model our human marriages after what that relationship is meant to be. So single, divorced, married folks, we're all guilty of sin in telling a different story than the one that was laid out here this morning. We all are. But because of that greatest act of love, when Christ died for his unfaithful bride to sprinkle us with his blood, thus making us clean, because of that, we can turn from our sin and find complete forgiveness at the foot of the cross, no matter what we've been a part of, no matter what has happened. And just as Christ was raised to new life three days later, we too can be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do life and relationships in an entirely new way, one that follows the contours of the story God is telling instead of the stories that we would write for ourselves. If you're here this morning or, or, or watching with us this morning and you haven't yet taken your place in the multi-generational, multinational bride of Christ, you'll never be offered a part in a greater story than this one. You'll never know a love greater than the love of the one who dies for you, died for you when you were in the thick of your unfaithfulness to him. Today could be the day when you receive his love and let him begin to write your story. I pray you will. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to show us concretely that love that you have for us, to put it into practice by dying in our place, to cleanse us, to sprinkle us with his blood, to wash us clean, to prepare us to be the radiant bride that he designed us to be. We look forward with anticipation to that great wedding feast to come, that moment that all of history has been pointing toward. And Lord, in our marriages, in our singleness, Wherever we find ourselves, God, help us to point to that story instead of telling a different story of our own. In Jesus' name, amen. We take a quick peek here at questions that may have been texted in. Everyone here, does marriage outside of the church have God's blessing? Does marriage outside of the church have God's blessing? Really important question. Because marriage was given not as a gift specifically to the church in the New Testament, because marriage was given not to God's people Israel as part of their law in the Old Testament, but because marriage was actually given at creation in Genesis 1 and 2 to humanity generally, I do believe that God... Uh, uh, joins together any two people who are married, whether that's a marriage inside the church or outside the church. And so that's why I 
have and do continue to marry folks at times when the situation's right who are both unbelievers. Uh, though I won't marry a believer to an unbeliever, I will marry two unbelievers because I do believe that it's uh, within God's will, generally speaking, that they don't just indefinitely live together, but that they actually take that step of getting married and uh, fulfilling what God intended for those uh, human romantic relationships going back to Genesis 1 and 2. Is divorce an unpardonable sin? So glad somebody asked that because it needs to be absolutely clear this morning that it absolutely is not. If you have been divorced, if you've been divorced and remarried, there is forgiveness. I, even if, it, if it's divorce that uh, you realize and look at a text like this one, you probably shouldn't have gotten into, there is forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ at the foot of the cross. This is not the unpardonable sin. There is grace at the foot of the cross for this sin and so many other sins uh, if we will just turn to him and repent. And that brings up an important question of what do I do when I find myself in a second marriage that I realize in hindsight I shouldn't have left my first spouse and gotten into the second marriage. What do I do now? What does repentance look like? And I think it's really important that we acknowledge the biblical counsel in those situations is not to terminate your second marriage. It's not to dissolve your second marriage, even if you got into it in a way that in hindsight was sinful. God can redeem that marriage. And as you turn from your sin, as you go before him and lay it before him, acknowledge it, uh, he can redeem that marriage into something new. But according to Deuteronomy 24, which does deal with those situations in which we have acted in hardness of heart, the counsel is clear in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. We're not to divorce our second spouse to go back to the first. Those are questions that were submitted. Thank you for texting those in. If you have more that come in, go ahead and text those in, and I'll put them in, the, in one of the emails that uh, go out this week. Let's continue to worship together.